everyone and welcome to tonight's Walkley Media Talk hosted by our event partner, the State Library of New South Wales. I'm Carla Grant and I'm the host and executive producer of Living Black, SBS's National Indigenous Current Affairs program, also shown on NITV. And on behalf of the Walkley Foundation, I'm pleased to welcome you all here for what promises to be a fantastic discussion, discussion telling Indigenous stories from beyond the block. And a special welcome to those of you who've found tonight's event through our new meetup group for Sydney journalists and media creatives. I'd first like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the elders past and present of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And at this point, most uh, people would ask you to uh, switch off your phones, but please leave them on silent. And we also want you to join in the, uh, the conversation as well on Twitter using the hashtag hashtag Walkleys. So now please, uh, I'd like to welcome our panel of experts tonight. We have Malandiri McCarthy. Malandiri is a senior journalist presenter for SBS and NITV News. She's a Yanyawa woman from Borodula in the Northern Territory and she's also a former ABC journalist and news reader. Malandiri also worked in politics as the member for Arnhem in the Northern Terri Territory Legislative Assembly as Minister for Children and Families Indigenous and Regional Development, Tourism, Statehood, Women's Policy, Senior Territorians, Young Territorians and the Minister assisting the Chief Minister on Multicultural Affairs until August 2012. I just said before, I was joking with the, what a portfolio haven't you had, Malandiri? <laughs> so uh, Malandiri's just uh, recently returned to the newsroom over the last couple of years with NITV. And also joining us tonight is Martin Butler, Martin studied, studied politics and economics at Oxford University and then went to work for the manager of the WHO. In 1981, he migrated to Australia and spent the next 25 years as a long-form current affairs television producer for ABC Four Corners, foreign correspondent and Dateline. He worked with Bentley Dean to produce the award-winning Contact, a film about the last first contact in the western desert of Australia. For the past three years, he has devoted his life to First Footprints, a documentary exploring ancient Aboriginal history, and was awarded the Walkley Award for documentary in 2013. And also please welcome Cathy Marks. Cathy won the 2013 Walkley Award for coverage of Indigenous affairs for channeling Manalagana, an essay on the plight of Indigenous Tasmanians published in the Griffith Review. Her work explored the, the links between the past and the present, a brutal history that still reverberates in today's fragmented community. Kathy was born in Manchester and worked for Reuters and Fleet Street newspapers before moving to Australia in 1999 as the Independence Asia-Pacific correspondent. She's a regular contributor to The Good Weekend, The Monthly and Griffith Review and the author, author of Pitcairn, Paradise Lost. So please welcome our panellists tonight. Okay. So um, firstly, um, I'd like to start with you, Malandiri. You started your career, as we know, um, as a journalist with the ABC, and, and you spent a lot of time in politics as well, and, and you've just returned to the media. Um, so what sort of changes do you think, or have you seen over the years uh, when it comes to reporting of Indigenous issues and, and the telling of Indigenous stories? I think the most uh, clear one for me in terms of changes, Carlo, is the participation of Indigenous people online in social media. Where once uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, especially across our remote communities, didn't really have a voice. Uh, in terms of the media and whatever voice they did have was quite limited through a, through a hierarchical structure and that means leadership in organisations. Now what you see is a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people voicing their opinions and their views and it's a really beautiful thing to see when it's constructive but like all comments on social media when it's destructive, it also has an incredibly negative impact and I can certainly give examples um, throughout our discussion this evening. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, have you seen, um, I guess in terms of, as we know, um, over the years, um, you know, we've seen a lot of um, negative stereotypes and um, negative stories about Indigenous Australia. How do you think it's changed, um, you know, the last 10 years, I guess? The uh, negative stereotypes, I think, will always be there. I think it's human nature to, um, to, to look at things in a negative way. What we're seeing more of is the, uh, the rise of the voice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, through the media and that their voices are clearly being heard when you look at um, you know, some of the examples across remote regions and it doesn't necessarily have to be remote regions. Even in our cities where voices are now being heard through online, uh, it creates a broader understanding that there are different schools of thought, you know, that uh, all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't think the same way. Uh, that certainly there are different views about different issues and uh, there is something quite empowering about being able to do that. So in terms of uh, negative stereotypes, what happens now, I think, which is very different to when I started back in the, in the late 80s, is that there is an immediate response and reaction uh, from uh, general members of the community across uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities than there was, say, back in the 80s. Okay, um, Cathy and Martin. Um, you'll both, you know, have a wealth of experience as journalists. What sort of changes have you um, observed over, over the years when it comes to reporting on Indigenous issues and, and you know, telling our stories? Cathy, maybe. Oh, you go, Cathy. Well, I mean, I've been in Australia for just 15 years, relatively short time. I, I do remember when I um, arrived being um, quite struck and um, impressed by the... Um, the uh, volume and, and uh, quality of Indigenous Affairs coverage. I didn't quite expect to see that in the mainstream media. Um, <clears throat> obviously that goes up and down. Um, uh, you know, from my own point of view, um, I guess I'm approaching the whole subject or uh, subject area of Indigenous Affairs as an outsider, which uh, you know, can have its pitfalls obviously, but I think can also be an advantage. Um, perhaps not quite as hamstrung as I might be if I understood all the <laughs> or the endless sort of degrees of um, uh, you know sensitivity around the subject, although obviously I try to be as mindful as, po as possible of, of, of those sensitivities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I think uh, taking a sort of a, a long time span, that there has been enormous change. I, I mean, I think um, uh, institutions like NITV, regular um, current affairs programs on mainstream television and radio, um, and the enormous uh, sort of uh, depth of skill of Aboriginal practitioners uh, in the media now has sort of transformed the landscape because it's it's enabled um, uh, you know a very real Aboriginal voice I think to emerge and, and to sort of have a platform on which to emerge so you know those those have been fundamental changes um, I, I mean I think another one is the uh, there's now a much greater recognition from um, you know, a broader range of filmmakers um, about the need to, um, you know, collaborate effectively with Aboriginal people when you're making films about them, um, that you can't just sort of go in there and, you know, shoot away and then come away and, you know, do whatever you want to do with it, um, that there are proper ways of doing things, there are protocols in place, um, and, uh, you know, they've all been emerging over you know, the last 20 years, and, um, you know, and I think uh, a lot of them, are, uh, you know, are working very well. Yeah, and Mullen Terry, I was going to ask you about that, just, you know, with the emergence of so much, uh, uh, you know, um, Indigenous media, I guess, over the, the past 10, 15 years, you know, the Courier Mail and the um, National Indigenous Times and now the um, you know, NITV, been around for seven years now, so like, you know, how, how much has, has that made a difference um, you know, to telling Indigenous stories and, and the coverage of Indigenous issues? Sure, Carla, there's certainly uh, been an increase in Indigenous media coverage. Let's not forget, though, that there has been uh, Indigenous media organisations under the broadcasting in remote Aboriginal communities, so you had BRACS uh, organisations in the late 80s, early 90s, across Australia in, in remote regions. A lot of the problem for, for many of those um, 
voices in the broadcast area was largely funding. Uh, if if uh, you know communication system couldn't be established properly at say you know Bullman in Arnhem Land or over at uh, at um, Karanara uh, Broome area, th there were difficulties that in, in terms of maintaining that. What we've seen uh, with the growth even of Imparja in Central Australia, uh, Karma Radio, and then of course NITV, uh, there has been a significant influence in Australian thinking and, and across society that uh, the richness of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture is enormous and the depth, the depth of spirituality and belonging and sense of uh, communication and kinship is now able to be communicated far more broadly uh, to all people across Australia which is, uh, which is a wonderful thing. I, uh, I also acknowledge though the, the push by mainstream media in particular uh, the work of the ABC and SBS with your program uh, prior to MITV coming coming on board. Uh, the, the consistent push by even radio programs like Speaking Out, Away, uh, Blackout in its earlier days with the ABC was always a reminder of the conscience of this country that uh, Australia has a black history, a living history that still exists and those programs are, are to be commended for the continuation of, of that voice. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to ask you how, how effective do you think those um, you know, have, uh, those programs have been in, uh, you know, uh, I guess breaking down barriers between, uh, you know, the, the um, you know, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in this country and, you know, contributing towards, you know, uh, better relationships between black and white. Look, they've certainly been incredibly beneficial in communicating those things. They've also had their problems too in uh, in terms of conflicts with stories or the way to report on stories or, you know, even with uh, journalists going into areas that perhaps they shouldn't. So there's been a real learning along the way, which is always important. But I think one of the greatest uh, benefits of uh, places like the ABC in particular uh, is the training of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The fact that there has been an incredibly concerted effort to train people over a significant amount of time, but not just only in um, bureaus across the country, but for those who do wish to go back and work in their own communities and be able to run media in some format. You've also had the, the newspapers like uh, the Koori Mail over a, a number of years and certainly even uh, the land councils who've had their own uh, communication with their newspapers. I think uh, you know you had NIT, um, National Indigenous Times, uh, of course Tracker at the Land Council. So all of these uh, media outlets are there to, to keep the issues at the forefront. But also, Paula, I think to show that there are very different voices uh, in, in that space. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how can we tell Indigenous stories better and what improvements can be made? Maybe, well, well, I'll pose that question to, to Cathy. Um, I mean, um, personally, I think that one um, way of doing that is to um, approach that whole subject area like any other subject. I mean, um, yes, um, there are um, certain protocols and, and so on which absolutely have to be observed. Um, and, you know, you always have to go in with respect and, and uh, intelligence, if you like. Um, but I think, um, I mean, certainly the way that I would work is, and I do work, is to, um, you know, I feel I have a valid professional reasons for, go, you know, for going into or um, seeking to go into remote communities, or in the case of the um, the Griffith Review essay that you mentioned, you know, of, of going to um, Tasmania and, and, you know, getting access to the different communities there. Um, I mean, I think in a sense, what I was saying before about being an outsider, that does help to some extent. Um, but also, you know, feeling that you have a legitimate professional reason to be there and, and uh, stepping in boldly, I guess, in, in some ways. As a non-Indigenous journalist um, reporting on Indigenous issues, what sort of obstacles, or have you faced any ob obstacles um, in, in uh, you know, doing your, uh, you know, writing your piece on Tasmania and you've also written other um, you know, stories on various Indigenous issues? Um, look, not. I mean, I, I, I'm not aware that I've faced obstacles that um, an Indigenous journalist wouldn't face. Um, I'm just aware of the, you know, the various pitfalls and um, 
hurdles that, that are there. I mean, uh, you know, in the case of Tasmania, for instance, there's not the, the, the you know, physical barriers um, or, or formal procedures that need to be followed in terms of visiting, for instance, in a, a remote community in the Territory. Um, but yet, um, you know, the community or communities there um, are very self-contained um, and quite tricky to access and penetrate. So, um, you know, that, that, that obviously has to be negotiated very carefully. I mean, it struck me just when I was on the bus here tonight that even the title of our talk, Telling Indigenous Stories, it would be completely beyond the pale in Tasmania, where the word indigenous is absolutely... Um, uh, it's not, you can't use it. Um, I mean, I found that out within about two minutes starting <laughs> my research on that subject. I know that's not peculiar to Tasmania, but I think it's particularly pronounced there. Um, you know, we're, they say we're Aborigines, and you know, don't, Indigenous is for flora and fauna, so don't go using that word. Um, so even in terms of the language, like, things can be very tricky. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I went in the lead up to this, we were talking over the phone about cultural uh, obstacles and, and sensitivities. Um, you know, can you sort of talk us through that? Um, well, look, I think it that again varies from place to place. Um, uh, you know, in terms of uh, you know whether you are visiting um, you know a, a community in the territory or in, in Western Australia that's really um, you know very self-contained has its own you know you have to really negotiate quite a series of formal and procedural barriers to get in and hopefully to have someone you know a friend on the inside is helping you to get access. Um, uh, you know, whereas. Um, coming out of Tasmania where these things are less kind of obvious because the communities are much more integrated I mean they are integrated in many ways into the mainstream and yet you have to be so careful about who you talk to and in what order you talk to people in terms of the leadership um, you know um, I mean I found myself quite um, uh, randomly uh, as it were at a, at a funeral um, in Launceston and um, you know, obviously felt very keenly there that, um, I mean, I was there by invitation, so that was fine, but I, you know, I wanted to be sort of uh, not seen or heard. I mean, I wanted to just very much do the right thing, obviously. Um, and, you know, situations like that, you just I think you just have to use your common sense and your, you know, your, your tact and your natural sensitivity and, uh, and so on. Martin, can you tell us about your experiences, um, you know, while working with... Um um, uh, on, on your documentary and on your film, and just in terms of uh, you know, consultation and collaboration and, and uh, uh, knowing about protocols as well. Yeah, okay, look, I'll talk a, a little bit uh, about First Footprints because it was sort of such a, a big, grand um, piece of work. It was four hours of television and it was telling the entire history of um, you know, Aboriginal presence on the, uh, on the continent. Um, uh, we obviously had to um, approach that sort of consultation, approval, um, protocol process pretty seriously from the beginning. Um, and of course we uh, very um, quickly uh, realised that, um, as Cathy was saying, um, that whoever you work with, uh, there's no sort of common pattern. It really does vary um, group to group as to their level of um, you know, organisation and lots of people have land councils that sort of um, you know, will speak on their behalf but lots don't and some fiercely you know, uh, protect their independence and you know, it's, it's quite a sort of a complicated mix. Um, but in our case we did um, uh, try and draw up um, our own set of protocols because there's sort of, you know, every single group has sort of an overlapping separate um, set of, you know, issues and demands and, you know, uh, we, we, we drew up our own set um, and, you know, that were absolutely applicable just for the, you know, the documentaries we were making um, to try and sort of, you know, make that process easier. Um, it did take a, a very long time. We, um, we, we in fact shot with um, 17 different communities around the country um, and in each case we, um, uh, we had to sort of um, you know, consult extensively with them about what we were filming, what we would film with them, um, how we would use the stuff we filmed with them. Um, we um, very quickly um, established some, um, um, some sort of um, 
agreements whereby we, we agreed to give every community all of the material that we shot there. Um, you know, because technology allows that nowadays, you can sort of, you know, take all of your rushes and, you know, um, and, and dump them down and, and pass them on. So that every community now has quite a lot of, you know, library material, um, you know, for, for them to do uh, what, they, what they would like with. Um, and um, one of the big things about our protocols, though, was um, what, what would we do about the death of a participant? Because that's obviously an extremely sensitive thing in, in some but not all of, of the communities around the country. Um, and so we you know, took a lot of advice on that. Um, we, we ended up having a, a part of the protocol that um, if any family member, someone who had died, wanted to um, remove or restrict something that their uh, family member had, had said or appeared in the film, that they would be allowed to do that uh, up until the rough cut, the, the sort of the locking off of the rough cut. So we had to sort of think about a technical thing because in fact it gets extremely difficult technically to sort of lose a character you know, at fine cut stage. It's sort of it's right at the very end of the process of making and you could destroy the whole thing by having to lose a character. So we thought carefully about what we could possibly live with and what might be appropriate and, um, and that's what we decided to do and um, you know, it was accepted by the communities we worked with and, um, um, and we didn't have issues in the end. One of the other things that we did though was to uh, offer every community um, the ability to um, remove veto uh, material that we shot uh, from the rough cut if there was a sort of a, a cultural sensitivity about it. If, um, you know, in, the, in our process of filming, we'd sort of, you know, film something that they, they didn't want shown, or, you know, anyone had said something that, um, that the uh, community felt was inappropriate, um, uh, we would send them, you know, everything in, in the rough cut, um, and they could say at that stage, no, um, you know, uh, we don't want that in the film. Um, and uh, that did happen with two really important sequences in, in the film. Um, you know, it was a major disaster for us, um, and uh, one of them we had to uh, go back and, and reshoot, um, and it was right in the middle of the most remote part of the Kimberley, about as expensive an area as you could possibly choose to get to, um, and did involve uh, charter planes and helicopters. I mean, it was incredibly, you know, and, um, uh, but um, uh, I'd have to say in hindsight, I mean, the community said, no, look, we, we really don't think, you know, that you've captured our story properly. We think you should interview this man, um, and that's what we went back to do, and it did improve the film. Um, you know, we were desperate not to do it at the time. It was right at the end of the process, and so we, you know, didn't want to do it, but we did, and it was better for it, so that, that worked well. Um, and the other one was um, about a location. We'd, um, we'd, we'd shot with a particular community, the entire sort of sequence, you know, maybe, maybe three, four days shooting, all in this one particular valley, spectacular art all around, and, um, you know, lots and lots of talk about the location, and... Um, um, and we'd sort of duly cut it into the film, sent off the rough cut, and they came back and said, oh, um, I know you can't, you can't use that name, you can't, you can't sort of use that location. You know, sorry, that's, you know, that's not for um, you know, general public concern. And, you know, we were, ah, but you took us there and we did all this filming. And, um, now, I mean, we, we managed to um, uh, get around that one in f by a sheer stroke of luck. Um, the, um, the community leader that had, that had taken us to this piece of filming for First Footprints, we'd also filmed with um, about two or three years earlier um, while we were filming uh, for Contact um, at another valley um, that uh, could serve as our sort of First Footprints location. So we sort of transferred the story to this other valley that we actually hadn't shot for first footprints, you know, it's sort of uh, we're using earlier material and sort of cutting around it in a judicious way. But anyway, that's, again, I mean, a, a very serious blow to us, you know. I mean, we, we, we would have wanted anything but to hear that at the last stage. Um, but again, I mean, I think that um, uh, if you, if you, 
if you take on the process of, of collaborating properly with, with Aboriginal communities, it's got to be real and you've got to mean what you say um, and you know, by being open and upfront um, and uh, you know, uh, doing it in that way, you know, it, it worked out very well for us. All of the communities at the end of the day were very, very pleased um, you know, with the material um, that they were involved in. Um, and um, you know, so uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a real issue. But you know, my advice is, you know, take take it on board. It, 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 mostly, it's a it's a correct issue. You, you should do things in this way, um, and um, you know, uh, don't you know, don't don't be afraid in a way. I mean, you know, just we went to great lengths to um, you know to do the right thing by the community and um, and to, to you know tell the story in a respectful way. And um, Kathy, um, you know, would you agree with um, you know, what Martin said in terms of you know? proper collaboration and consultation with communities and do you find that you get a better story? Um, not necessarily. I mean, on, on one level I do agree with um, um, the need to be respectful and follow protocols as far as possible, but I also think there's a tension between, there can be a tension between following those protocols and collaborating and the need to be independent in your, in your journalism. Um, and that can obviously throw up some really tricky dilemmas. Um, I mean, I, th I think it's probably more difficult in TV because you've got pictures. Um, and I think I could probably get around that problem more easily in, in purely in writing. But it's still, it's difficult. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm guided by what I think is the, the reality of the situation that I'm sort of excavating and trying to get to the you know, the truth of, if you like. Um, and at the end of the day, it may well be a, tr a truth or reality that no one else likes or accepts. Um, but, you know, ideally, probably everyone recognises something in there. I mean, it, it varies, of course, from situation to situation, but um, I think at, in, the end, in the end, I'm I would be guided by instinct without actually going out there and trampling on any protocols, if that makes sense. Look, I would add to that that uh, I mean, uh, I, I think it, it, there is um, a difference um, between um, current affairs journalism, news journalism, and first footprints. Um, because I think, as a current affairs journalist, I, I, I uh, didn't go around uh, offering people the right to uh, veto at rough cut stage. Um, that's actually quite an important principle that I wouldn't. Um, breach because um, you know that can be uh, you know really important um, in terms of um, maintaining you know your, your independence. As, as, that's right. Yeah. Um, but I think in First Footprint's case, it was very much easier for us because um, uh, you know we didn't have um, a, a particular editorial line to run, protect um, you know, uh, and the the, the the veto was um, only over. Or, or for sort of um, you know um, cultural um, um, you know reasons it, you know it, it wasn't a sort of a blanket um, you know whatever you don't like we'll take out um, you know they had to say why it, you know they wanted you know that particular change made um, but it's because I think it, it, it is important to um, uh, uh, be able to um, you know retain editorial control in, in most journalistic situations. What's your view on that, Malandir, um, mm. in terms of following protocols and consulting with the community and with people um, while you know, reporting on the stories? Carla, <coughs> um, I think it, it really comes down to respect. Uh, I think just listening to Cathy and, and Martin that uh, you're respectful of uh, where you're going into and what you're doing. I think I'd like to think that's probably something that everyone's conscious of, uh, whatever they're reporting on, whether it's uh, going into an Aboriginal community or another cultural community, um, somewhere that you're not familiar with, that you you know you've got to learn some things here too. However, also I think, as Cathy said, that you've still got to come back to, well, what's the story? And uh, how far do you push to investigate a story? Uh, in w w What are the protocols for yourself? I think, as a journalist and, and your news team, what is it that you're trying to do? So you still come back to the values, the basic fundamental 
values of journalism. Uh, however, when you're working with another culture, there is uh, an added awareness of, of respect. Do you think that uh, it has improved, I guess, in terms of um, uh, you know, non-Indigenous media covering Indigenous issues? Well, I certainly would like to think so. I think it's uh, you've got to have a great deal of optimism that as you progress uh, in terms of uh, informing all Australians, but also you know your colleagues uh, in in the media industry, that there are now avenues for people to go to as journalists to inquire. You can talk to fellow journalists who are who are First Nations people and ask for their advice and and seek that. There are certainly um, advantages now that weren't there uh, when I first began. Uh, if you choose not to do that, then you choose to go with the risk of making more mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to move on to um, what do you think, um, or what does the Indigenous media bring to a story that the mainstream doesn't? Well, I guess we'd, we'd have all, all sorts of views on that, but uh, if I reflect on uh, some of the challenges we've had in ITV News, and I guess, yeah, what I wanted to get onto was like, how do, you know, would we cover a story differently to mainstream sure. media? Well, well, certainly for NITV News, we we come from the perspective of First Nations. Uh, how do we see this particular issue? Who can we talk to that's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander about that issue? Uh, the debates that are going on, how can we unpack uh, what's happening in the Parliament and what it means to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? This is the constant daily discussion that we have in terms of our editorial approach to our 5.30 news bulletin. One example that shines a light for me uh, so far is the example of the uh, Thorn brothers in Saudi Arabia. Two Noongar brothers who were, were in Saudi Arabia and uh, their mother wanted uh, them released. One was in jail and the other one was in hiding. Now, the mother had gone to a number of mainstream media organisations to have her story told. She eventually came to NITV News and it was an incredibly complex story because not only were you dealing with um, you know, a mother's concern for her sons, you were dealing with an international system that you just knew it was incredibly difficult to get answers from. You had to verify whether what you were being told was the case, which you would do anyway. Um, and our perseverance of that, I think, was a really strong example of the fact that we persevered because they were Noongar boys from Perth. And I, I think that's an example of the perspective that we come from and why we push. Mm. Yeah. Martin, you know, having worked in, in um, you know, current affairs for a very long time, why do you think um, uh, you know, Indigenous stories, I guess, uh, don't, uh, I guess, you know, aren't really, uh, you know, in terms of, as Mal and Deary were saying, um, the mainstream media weren't really interested in that story. Um, why do you think that would be? Oh, look, I think it's uh, probably a number of reasons, but I, I do think that um, in the commercial television world there's um, uh, definitely a view that um, uh, Aboriginal stories don't rate, um, and uh, you, you actually hear it quite, you know, frequently in those in those circles, um, um, you know, and they, they, they mean it, you know, and I mean, they're, they're, if their you know, programs don't rate, they won't make them. Um, and uh, so I think that that's you know that, that, that's actually real. Um, within um, you know ABC and SBS uh, that I sort of have worked in and sort of know more about, uh, you know I mean I think that there's always in fact been you know quite a strong interest in in making stories about Aboriginal issues. Um, one of the problems has been that, um, or you know, one of the sort of broader problems has been that um, a lot of those stories, um, you know, have been very negative. I mean, um, um, but again, I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, criticise particularly for that. I, I think that um, you know that, that there are a lot of um, you know very negative things that are going on in you know in lots of lots of Aboriginal communities. Um, that, that deserve reporting on, you know, and, and people are better off for knowing about them. 
um, uh, you know, how, how does one improve it? I, I think that um, in a way, there is no way to guard against the, um, the, the, the sort of shock horror reporting that you will get from time to time. I mean, um, you know, media outlets will go into, um, you know, petrol sniffing communities or, you know, drunken communities and um, groups of drunken men in parks, um, you know, and film them and exploit it and, you know, feed a stereotype. Um, but, you know, I don't you know, think that there's any, um, you know, way of stopping that. I mean, you know, there's no sort of regulation that I think is worth putting on to sort of, you know, stop that. I mean, I, th I think that um, within the responsible media, uh, that sort of thing hasn't been going on for quite some time. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's, a, you know, a mixed bag, a mixed bag overall. Mm. Um, Cathy, do you have any thoughts on that? Sorry, what's in terms of um, improving the, the, um, yeah, the reporting of Indigenous uh, well, I mean, I haven't, <clears throat> I haven't worked in TV, but I've, I ha had re reported to me so many times what Martin just said about, you know, well, that's only about black fellows who cares, or no one, no one want to watch it. Um, you know, a couple of quite sort of horrifying examples. But um, um, look, I just think if you keep hammering away at it, producing quality journalism, whether it's in the mainstream media and TV, newspapers, whatever, or whether it's in indigenous media, then you open people's eyes and... and uh, I'm astonished that story um, wasn't picked up by the yeah, mainstream so media. I mean, I, I only heard about that recently. They jumped on it after it was yes, broken on NITV. Yeah. To turn it down, that's, that's yeah. astonishing. Um, yeah. Mm. Well, Mel and Jerry, what do you think we can do to, I guess, improve um, you know, the, um, the reportage of Indigenous stories and... Yeah, improve Indigenous reporting and the reporting of Indigenous stories, um, both you know, in the Indigenous media and and across the board. <coughs> well, employ more mainstream. Indigenous people. Uh, you know, you, you just have to employ more Indigenous people in every media uh, section right across this country. Uh, learn from the people who know. Uh, I think that uh, you know when you take that step as a media organisation, you will be greatly enriched for having done it. Mm. And I guess, yeah, as Martin was saying, a lot of the stories are negative as well. And how do we get people to, to report those good news stories? So I was just going to say, oh. you know, look, sorry. <laughs> you know, to look, to look for those stories. I mean, one of the most enjoyable stories I've ever done was um, a, a magazine piece for Good Weekend about Norforce, the Aboriginal regiment in the top end. What a fantastic story, mm. you know, about transforming lives of people with, you know, sort of otherwise often trapped in a bit of a, a purposeless limbo and giving, you know, um, young men and women a real sense of purpose and concrete skills, you know, that can be used outside the army. North, North Force is a, a largely Aboriginal regiment in the, in the top end, um, you know, that is supposed to be sort of the eyes and ears of, of, uh, of Australia in those remote regions. And it's just fantastic. It's just a shame it's not really replicated. Um, you know, it, uh, much in, in Australia because it's such a fantastic template. You know, you see a, a equality uh, within uh, and respect within North Force that I'm not sure I've really seen anywhere else. So, you know, that if, where those counter stories exist to really, you know, write them, shoot them, and, and, and try and sort of uh, hope people will read and, and, and watch them. Mm -hmm. I think um, we might take some questions from the floor. <laughs> um. Um, my name is Alice Grady, I'm a filmmaker. Um, I'm also a stolen generation Aboriginal descendant. Um, if an Aboriginal was arrested for four kilograms of mar marijuana in a boogie board bag in Indonesia, would we have had ten years of media coverage on Channel 7 and Channel 9? Look, that, that week, this is with the Ch Chappelle Corby case, that same week there was something else that was going on in, in Australia. Well, there were lots of things going on. but. Um, but, but in this instance, it was to do with the return of one of the Thorn brothers from the Saudi prison. And uh, the uh, eldest brother, uh, Shaden Thorn, was uh, in jail uh, on allegations of terrorism, which were never proven. And ultimately, he was pardoned by the Saudi authorities, uh, given the lobbying by the Noongar community and the families and with uh, DFAT. Shaden Thorne arrived in the country 
on that pardon on the eve of Chappelle Corby's release. But nobody in this country knew. I've never heard that story. So, so it, it is a really valid question. And I think people need to, those media analysts and experts who look at the way stories are told, need to analyse that week and really have a good look at how it is that a young man who'd been under allegations of torture uh, by his family and his lawyers, that he'd been in a, in a situation that he should not have been in, and that it looked like he was not going to come home, and then all of a sudden, on a pardon, he was released, and he's now back home with his family in Perth, with his brother. So the two of them are now back safely in Australia. So I can't answer that question, but I wanted to, again, put a spotlight on something else that was going on, which gives, um, which suggests all those things that you've said in your question, that uh, why does the media cover this, and in the case of Chappelle, uh, just saturation, and yet here was quite a, an incredible story of freedom. Another example, if I can just um, sort of chip in there, with, uh, and I think this was covered in a recent Four Corners. Um, uh, obviously, the tragic, awful story of Daniel Morgan, who went missing at the age of 10, and the um, indigenous 10 year old from, I've forgotten actually which community it was, I think it was, was it Cape York or in the no, territory? It was my community, Barrow. Oh, okay. Mm. Um, the, the, the lack of the lack of coverage, to, you know, the lack of coverage given to the disappearance of this other ten-year-old who was black, compared with you know our massive interest in uh, um, this you know this white boy who went missing in, um, in Queensland. Can I um, just add to that, Kath? And I'd like to acknowledge the producer of that program, Karen Mitchell Moore from Four Corners, because uh, in the red there, in the fourth row back, just for anyone who wants to have a look. <laughs> okay. Fantastic piece. I, um, I was just wondering, um, I'm a photojournalist, I've been documenting, I was doing the Ten Embassy up until Aunt Isabel died about a year ago for a good 14 years. Um, over my period of uh, documenting the Ten Embassy, something that I came across early on was uh, questions as to why I was doing it. I remember having a conversation with uh, an Indigenous friend who was challenging my particular point of view on... on uh, something that I thought possibly uh, the way we should go about things. What it made me question was, um, am I doing it for a message that I would like to get across or am I doing it for the community themselves? I suppose what my question is, is in the reporting of Indigenous stories, is it also, uh, I, I would think possibly, a strongly uh, political perspective too? Because my uh, personal perspective is that this is Indigenous land and therefore the way I would uh, document a story is purely from that perspective telling their message as opposed to, say, for example, a, a, a story coming from a, a non-Indigenous news source who might be coming totally from a, a different perspective in terms of possibly mining, economics, etc. So I'm wondering if possibly when you do come from a totally different philosophy right from the start, if you're going to be reporting totally differently. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I think everyone who, um, you know, uh, makes material, you know, journalistic material, filmmaking material, documentary material, um, you know, does so from the perspective that they're coming from. Um, you know, uh, so uh, it's clearly the case that, um, uh, uh, you know, one's sort of worldview, broader worldview, uh, informs that. Um, I mean, I, I have thought um, over time um, how, how might First Footprints have been a different product um, had it been made by Aboriginal filmmakers, um, because there's clearly some, uh, you know, lots of uh, Aboriginal filmmakers who, who could have made it, you know, I mean, there's lots and lots of skilled people now and they're really, you know, um, uh, more than capable of taking on something like that and, um, you know, and doing it brilliantly. Um, and uh, I mean, I, it made me think along your lines. You see, I think that it probably would be quite a different product. I think underlying First Footprints is a very um, strong sense of the sort of, um, you know, the, the scientific rationalist story, 
you know, I mean, that's that's the sort of the, the base on which the, the, the story is built. Um, and I'm sure for um, Aboriginal people, um, you know, uh, something more spiritual or something, you know, based on, um, you know, a different sort of, you know, set of contexts, um, uh, you know, would have, would have uh, probably emerged. Um, so, you know, in answer to your question, you know, I think it's absolutely true. In John Pilger's latest documentary, Topia, he levels some criticisms at the late line reporting that led to the Little Children Are Sacred report. Do you feel that the media reporting sticking to these negative stories and looking at these awful things that are happening lend themselves to the top-down paternalistic legislative response that comes from the government? Yes. <laughs> you know, without a doubt, um, media coverage has a massive influence. Uh, whether it's a good influence or a negative influence will always depend on who's making the decision and how they made the decision. But if I reflect on my time in the Northern Territory Parliament, uh, being conscious of what was being reported and how it was being reported was always a, um, an everyday uh, understanding that it's important, I think. And I think that's why, for me personally, if I can just digress a bit, Angus, that um, it made me value even more the importance of democracy uh, and the importance of a healthy media that challenges and questions decisions uh, that are made in this country uh, about anything and everything. And that when you compare to other countries around the world where democracy is not the case, and even those countries that do have democratic governments, you need to have a very, very strong media. And uh, I, I guess that's why I came back into the media when I uh, lost my seat in Parliament, because uh, it certainly made it incredibly clear to me that uh, those questions have to always be asked of all politicians and about all pieces of legislation as to why those pieces of legislation come into the Parliament. The day that the um, intervention occurred in the Northern Territory, I was the member for Arnhem, I was a backbencher, and uh, it was the most incredibly disempowering day of my political life because there was nothing that 25 members of the Parliament of the Northern Territory could do to stop a decision that was made well beyond our borders and made without any discussion uh, with any members. And what could I say to the people of Arnhem and the Yorgan people of all those communities? So, uh, to answer your question, yeah. I would like to say thank you very much for saying. And I have seen John Spiegel's movie called Utopia. I would like to know what do you think about this movie? It was so interesting to watch. I would like to know. I think it was... Has anyone seen um, Utopia? Yes, I've seen it. Yeah. Um, look, I've got a lot of time for John Pilger. I've seen all of his films over the years, and I've often found myself sort of defending him. Um, I thought with Utopia, it, it, it sort of it, it lacked a coherence for me. I, I thought that um, you know, obviously, there's a sort of a, an underlying um, anger about. Um, the treatment of white Australia, uh, you know, by white Australia of, of Aboriginal people, um, but for me it sort of it, it, it blended too many different things, and I sort of didn't think that you know going back to some people that he'd met on previous films, you know, over sort of fifteen years ago, uh, it just sort of didn't sort of gel together for me. I, I would have much preferred to see something more direct um, on the intervention. I think that the intervention in the Northern Territory is a very sort of interesting, um, you know, government policy. It's a very interesting development, and there's lots and lots of things that you could, um, you know, investigate and say about it. He touched on it, but I didn't think, you know, got got very far. So, you know, that's a bit my take. Anyone else got a I haven't seen it, but um, um, you know.
know, I've, I've read a lot of um, John Calder's writings, and um, um, I, I mean, I was actually um, talking to someone the other day about it, um, such as my parents in the UK who have seen the film, um, and I was just saying that um, John Pilger, who I've got a lot of respect for, in some ways reminds me of Robert Fisk, who's the, from the correspondence for the newspaper that I write for in the UK, The Independent, that um, they, they sort of batter you with, with polemics in a way, um, and, and I, I find that I'd rather be sort of, um, uh, I'd rather be left to sort of make my, you know, give me the facts and let me sort of make my own judgment rather than being sort of hit over the head with stuff. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, there's a place for that kind of um, journalism and filmmaking, and I mean, yeah, I think there yeah, is, and, absolutely. and John fills it, yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, I, John I, that's right, yeah. I think, you know, it's absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any other questions? It's uh, sort of a comment, but I just was thinking as I heard, uh, as I heard Martin talking about the uh, the fact that uh, Aboriginal stories don't rate. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard that in newsrooms in Australia over the last 40 years, a bit more than 40 now, I'd, I'd be a rich man. But uh, obviously, being a journalist, I'm not a rich man. <laughs> but what I would was commenting when somebody was complaining about a story that was on white line. I don't know what the hell we would do in this country without SBS and the ABC, uh, and especially late line at 7.30. Whenever I hear a story about Aboriginal uh, indigenous uh, people, whatever's happened, I know that I'm not going to read about it necessarily in any of the papers the next day, except maybe the Australian. The Australian does do a good job on it. But the SBS and, and ABC, I really have to wait till 7.30, and I, if it's not there, then I know it's going to be on late line. And then ITV is a, a godsend. I just wish you had more people watching it. Uh, so I just, you know, how, how do we, uh, I think your comment about we should put, there should be an indigenous person in every newsroom around the country is actually wonderful, but you know, that, that's that's going to happen when we find out what happened with MH370. Uh, so I really think, uh, you know, that, that was, my comment was that I just, you know, I, I, if we didn't have them, we would be in real trouble because the indigenous story would not be told. And it would be not beyond the block. It would be beyond anywhere. We wouldn't be. We wouldn't be hearing anything. So that's not a very big question. But anyway, I got it off my you. chest. <laughs> I've been tweeting, tweeting the whole time, so that's why. Oh, I excellent. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think that's. Um, if you could all uh, thanks, uh, well, thank you all for, for coming tonight and, and thank our panellists, uh, Martin Butler, Kathy Marks and Malandiri McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.